0: Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson-Pettit. Zach is Managing Director of an Accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
1: Welcome back. My guest this week is Jimmy Chen. He's the CEO of a company called Propel. Jimmy and I met recently at South by Southwest. We ended up hitting it off, discovered we were both from Kansas City, ended up having dinner, I just could not stop asking him questions. I have a little bit of an obsession with fintech companies that are built to solve real world problems, not just real world problems, but real world problems for kind of the lower end of the socioeconomic bracket. There are obviously lots of fascinating fintech companies out in the world doing some really interesting things, but in a lot of cases, those companies are going after the Henry's, going after the high earnings, not yet rich group of that kind of socioeconomic spectrum. Propel doesn't. Propel is focused all the way on the other side, and that's really what got me interested. Um, So in this podcast today, we cover Jimmy's story before Propel. We cover the world of government services and technology that really got Jimmy into the world of startups and kind of got him moving down this entrepreneurial path. Uh, We talk about how he raised funds from the likes of A16Z, uh, Alexa Von Tobel, Kevin Durant, some really notable names. Also, the interview does happen uh, at the Propel offices in Brooklyn, so there's a little bit of occasional background noise, but I really hope you enjoy it. I had a great time. Jimmy's a fascinating guy. So without further ado, Jimmy Chen. Where are you from? Where are kind of the early days leading up to the college days? (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, I grew up in Kansas City, which you and I have talked about already. We, we have some uh, overlap there. Strong Kansas City roots. Um, still a huge fan of Kansas City sports teams and Kansas City barbecue and actually Kansas City in general, really. Um, my personal story is that I, uh, I was actually born in China, came to Kansas City when I was four years old with my parents. Uh, my parents worked kind of odd jobs and were kind of lower middle class until my father uh, lost his job when I was about 10. We had a couple of years of, of pretty rough kind of financial times. Um, I was fortunate to get a full ride based on financial need to Stanford, where I studied computer science and cognitive science, and then worked in, in Silicon Valley at companies like LinkedIn and Facebook as a product manager. Um, and so I think in many ways, my experience growing up in Kansas City with loving and supportive uh, uh, a family that that also had a variety of different financial challenges really informed sort of what I want to do in my career. So outside of
1: that time with your family, are there other portions kind of early in life that kind of informed your interest in finance? Like, what what kind of created that seed? Was it truly the, the family aspect or were there other kind of influences in your life at a young age that got you interested in finance?
0: Well, you know, it's funny, I wouldn't, uh, if you had asked me up until pretty recently, I would not say that I had an interest in finance, nor would mm-hmm. I say that I really worked in fintech. Um, I think one of the things that I sort of backed into, like, I'm, I'm just someone who's kind of backed into fintech because I think the issues that fintech aims to solve Um, are some of the core issues that that we ought to solve as a a society, right? They're questions of how does a family put food on the table? Or how do you afford the next step in your life? Um, And those aren't fintech questions. I think those are just human questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what attracts me to fintech as a category is that I think it underlies a lot of the core things that we try to power as a society.
1: So when did, when did that light bulb happen? Did that happen when you were at LinkedIn, when you were at Facebook doing the product thing?
0: No, it actually happened after I started Propel. So, you know, oh. I started Propel as a government software company, as like a civic tech play, not really as a FinTech play. And in fact, when I, so our first investor was the CFSI FinLab, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit that invests in, com- in, in, in companies that are for profit or nonprofit that have some positive impact on consumer, f- on financial health. Um, and in the early days of the FinLab, I wasn't sure if we were the right fit for that because I didn't really see us as a financial services company. I saw us as a government play. Um, and you know, to, to, to kind of shorten the story, one of the things that, that we realized is that um, at the end of the day, the service that we're dealing with is all about the finances of someone. And so we are a FinTech company.
1: So how, since you figured that out during the FinLab, what drove you to CFSI? What kind of drove you to that experience?
0: Uh, you know, we were... Um, I think the mission of the FinLab pretty like was was pr- pretty clearly resonant with what we were doing around mm-hmm. improving consumer, f- you know, the financial health of consumers. Um, it's just that we were doing it through government services. You know, we had identified early on that there was this huge opportunity in the user experience of government programs like Mm -hmm. the food stamps program in terms of what it felt like to use those programs, how they actually ran on a day to day basis and how the software of those companies compared to the experience of using software like Facebook. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I think we had always considered the financial impact of what we did as sort of a downstream thing, not as the core Mm. thing that we're trying to do as a company. Uh, I think after spending more time with our users, after thinking more deeply about what our actual business and strategy is, I think we came to realize that actually financial services is the crux of it.
1: You mentioned Facebook a couple times. Let's kind of pull on that thread a little bit about your time at LinkedIn and your time at Facebook. A lot of the most notable CEO, and then he t- he takes his Patagonia off, and there's the Stanford shirt. That's not. He's it's doing it's not it. It's, a, oh, that wasn't it's that a, wasn't for it's public a
0: power play. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hot in here.
1: I it? feel I feel like you, I just got power play, but yeah. we'll, we'll push through it. Um, so a lot of kind of the most notable CEOs of our generation had some kind of background in product. Be that at Google, be that at Facebook, you yeah. know, all of these kind of legendary product uh, management groups so what number one what was that training like number two uh did that kind of did that inform kind of where the things went with propel in the early days
0: you know i think one of the um things about product management that actually trains people to be good entrepreneurs is that it requires you to do just a little bit of everything Um, It prevents you from really specializing or or getting too deep in any one particular function, but it requires you to be dangerous across a variety of functions, especially in the consumer tech world Mm -hmm. um, where you really have to be a designer and an engineer and an analyst and a business person and and, and a marketer all kind of in one in order to be successful as a product manager. Um, So I think that's good training for when you run a startup and you actually, you like literally are all of those things. Right. Whereas, um, you know, that's a little different at a larger company. Um, You know, for me, my experience at big companies like Facebook and LinkedIn doing product management was really valuable. Just getting to work with extremely talented folks at the top of their sectors in consumer software. And just, I think one of the biggest things that I took away from my time at those companies was just the standard of the execution. There is extremely high, Hmm. right? What is the standard that we hold ourselves to in terms of how good the product has to be in terms of like how rigorous we're measuring the impact that we're having on people's lives, how, um, how do we hold ourselves to the standards in terms of just like how, how high quality is the actual um, the technology behind the scenes? Because it's got to scale to meet the needs of hundreds of millions of people. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the reasons I started Propel was uh, was learning more about the user experience of applying for food stamps in the United States and feeling like, the same care and craft that was going into modern software being built in Silicon Valley wasn't necessarily being applied to something that I thought was just really important, which is how does a low income family afford food? Mm-hmm. And why is it that we as a, as a society put so much time and energy and money into things like how nice the, the interface is on Facebook or Instagram and so little time and energy and money into the technology that helps someone pay for food?
1: it's a beautiful story it flows well right you're coming from you have the background I mean across the board like the narrative makes so much sense I'm sure it was not an uncomfortable salary at LinkedIn you were at Facebook during the IPO correct right so there was some some upside there was some I mean you were in an area in which you were being well taken care of I'm sure you were comfortable what drove you to jump off a building and put build a plane on the way down uh, in one of kind of in a sector that people have not thought of as a place to build startups I mean it's kind of you know, not, not the thing that most people in the Valley are probably thinking about solving that problem. So, what, what something must have pissed you off. I mean, or, you know, some, some intense emotion there must have come about. What drove that?
0: Well, I think the first, the first thing to get out there is not even an intense emotion. It was, It's just sort of a, a form of privilege, which is mm. that I had the, the ability to take this kind of risk. Um, and that I had the, the background and the context to, to understand how to take this kind of risk as well. And those are things that are not afforded to most people. Um, and so I'm, I'm extremely grateful that I had the ability to do something like I didn't take salary for the first two years at Propel as we were getting the company off the ground. Right. And that's, that's because I was fortunate to have worked at tech companies that were quite successful and they were able to pay me a pretty good salary. Um, and that's not something that, that's not a luxury that, that most people have. Uh, you know, the thing that, that, uh, really inspired me to think more about starting a company in this, to your point, unusual sector was, um, just thinking more about the different challenges that people solve with tech. And it actually, like the thing that pissed me off, to your point about being, an- being angry and that being a motivator yeah. for things, it's actually kind of something that feels kind of trivial in retrospect, but I got really pissed off when people think about tech as a toy. Hmm. Like when people think about smartphones and apps and they talk about them in a way that like, that's just a game, right? That's, that's Candy Crush Saga, that's Pokemon Go, right? It's just for fun, Facebook's just a toy. Um, when in reality, like, it, part of this was brewing during my, during my years at Facebook, where we, as employees of Facebook, really genuinely did not see Facebook as purely a toy, right? There are lots of positive social impacts, also negative social impacts, but there are lots of social impacts that come through using Facebook. Um, and I think uh, I've always been an optimist in terms of how much we can accomplish through tech, mm-hmm. and spent uh, several months of my time at Facebook being just uncomfortable with the amount of of uh, of time and energy and money being spent on tech for things that I would categorize as like comforting people who are already feeling comfortable, mm-hmm. and um, you know I was fortunate during this time to meet the folks at Blue Ridge Labs. Blue Ridge Labs is a nonprofit that's part of the Robin Hood Foundation um, that focuses on helping new companies start that are looking to fight poverty in some way uh, through technology, and. One of the core premises of Blue Ridge Labs is that people solve the problems that they understand. And that uh, if the only people who start software companies are people who have lots of money or who have CS, you know, a background in computer science Mm -hmm. or like who have an MBA, then you get those people to solve their own problems and they have a very specific set of problems. But then in 2019, the people who use software are very different from the people who start software companies. From just like a demographics point of view, those are two different populations. But the end result of that is that you talk to low-income Americans who these days disproportionately own smartphones that access the internet. And to them, their phones largely are a toy. It's Mm -hmm. not their fault. It's because no one's building the software that actually is aimed to meet their needs. One of my favorite lines in entrepreneurship is like, if I don't do it, who will kind of thing? And
1: is that kind of the way you felt? Like nobody else is going to go start this going to go this far down market right going to actually go by the true definition of disruption to that side of things um so is it almost that just like i have to do this because no one else will
0: yeah i mean again i want to emphasize the privilege in being able to make that choice right I think lots of people have that instinct or have a pro-social positive like i would love to do something like that but they just sure. have the capacity to and it's sure. not their fault um I, you know i think the combination of my background and how i grew up with um, you know, the fact that I've always been sort of a, like interested in mission-driven tech, I think it's easy to be cynical about companies like Facebook and LinkedIn these days, Sure, but I'll, I'll tell you, from the inside, they really are mission-driven companies. Now, I think one of the things I learned about that is you, you choose your mission carefully, mm-hmm. and depending on what you choose your mission to be, that can have an impact on what your actual product and business looks like. But that yeah. um, I do think fundamentally, they're not run as like, you know, P&L-hungry, sure. like, Businesses that are just all about the bottom line. There really are, you know, there's a mission behind what it is that that they're building. Yeah. Um, and so I I was I was sort of inspired by that model to think about okay, if you choose your mission carefully enough, can you actually choose a mission that allows you to build a business and that uses the same tools as companies like Facebook and LinkedIn, but that focuses on a very different type of problem.
1: One of the things in fintech that does drive me a little bit insane is kind of similar to this conversation is how. I don't know, you know, 80% is a random number that I'm pulling out, but 80% or so of fintech companies today are really kind of in that Henry space, you know, the high earning, not rich yet kind of area, mm-hmm. and that is one of the things that just floored me. Not everything has to be about White men who are making over a hundred thousand dollars living in San Francisco. So transitioning kind of into the early days of Propel, those first couple of years, you said when you weren't taking a salary. First off, let's let's kind of get the Propel versus Fresh EBT thing out of the way. Will you explain the the taxonomy of the name of the company versus the name of the product?
0: Propel is the name of the company. Um, we build a product. It's a free app that's available on Androids and the iPhone called uh, Fresh EBT. Uh, Fresh EBT works kind of like a mobile banking app for people on food stamps. So there are 40 million Americans that are currently on food stamps. They get their benefits on a debit card called an EBT card. And when we talk to people who have these EBT cards, one of the things we found is that uh, nearly everyone, when they go grocery shopping with their EBT card, has to call the 1-800 number on the back of their card first to know how much they can spend um, as they're shopping. So we looked into this. We asked, well, that that seems crazy. This may be the most commonly called phone number in the United States. Why, Why is there not a mobile banking app? for the EBT card. It's actually one of the most popular financial tools hmm. in the country. If you think about it by, by sheer number of cardholders, and actually also by transaction volume, it's one of the largest financial tools in the United States. Um, and the answer is that, that that's just sort of not how the system is run. Um, and so that's what Fresh EBT aims to be. It's sort of the first major kind of uh, mobile banking platform aimed to treat the EBT card and the food stamp program as it was meant to be, which is a financial tool that, aim, that aims to help people to get back on their feet.
1: So I was, uh, in doing research about this, I was listening to a podcast you did with a 16 Z and, uh, I kind of always just after our conversation and my time following you, I always thought that was the initial idea, but that was kind of a pivot. Wasn't it? The, <laughs> the idea that, uh, that, cause it sounds the way you just explain it, right? It's, it's obvious. Like, how is there not a mobile app out there for that? Um, but can you explain a little bit about what the initial thesis was
0: before you pivoted to what it is today? yeah, we spent about two years getting to the obvious idea, uh, which, which, which you know maybe says only about how 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 not obvious it was or how you know poor of a job we were doing finding it. Uh, so the initial experience that I had, I, I moved to New York from San Francisco after mm-hmm. I left Facebook and started at Blue Ridge Labs. Uh, and one of the early experiences that summer before we even incorporated as a company was going to the food stamp office in Brooklyn to learn more about what it's like to apply for food stamps. So, Um, my team and I went to went to the food stamp office to go apply for food stamps ourselves and the first thing you see when you open the door and you walk in is that there are like hundreds of people they're all waiting in line to fill out a paper form and talk to a human caseworker Mm. and most people are passing the time in the same way that you and I would probably pass the time if you had to wait for an hour which is they have their smartphones out right so you've got this like single snapshot of how human services in the United States are falling behind the times of like what's possible you know that the problem is not hardware um, the problem is, is just that we haven't figured out how to get those paper forms and whatever it is, the questions those human caseworkers need to ask on those phones that people already have in their pockets.
1: You walk into this room, there's way, tons of people waiting to talk to some humans. You figure they've got their smartphones out already. Let's just have them sign up on the smartphone itself. But yeah, that, like, didn't, that but didn't pick up a
0: ton of steam. Why don't we build a way to sign up for food stamps on your phone? mobile friendly enrollment this is back in 2014 where i think mobile had all it it had already been sufficiently clear to the world that mobile was the way that things were going yeah Um, but that there there were still some laggards in terms of transitioning over to mobile friendly websites and having mobile apps for things um you know it was an era where there were no real ways to 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 submit these types of government forms on your phone um, that actually not all governments um, at the state level actually had even a website where you could sign up. For some of them, it was like literally there's a paper form still, and that was it. Mm. Um, And so our V1 of what we built at Propel was we called it the TurboTax for the Food Stamps enrollment form, which is sort of the same way that TurboTax is a a private company that sits on top of the tax form and makes Mm -hmm. it easier for, for you to fill that out. We wanted to do the same thing for someone who's applying for the Food Stamp program. And was that... Was that not picking
1: up enough traction for it to be a venture-backed company, or was that just not picking up traction? Like, what, what were those first couple of years like trying to get people to start using that?
0: Well, you know, we had some successes and had some failures. Ultimately, we helped about 400 people to apply for and to get uh, food stamp benefits, which is something that I was really proud of. I mean, 400 yeah. families that qualified for food stamps now had it because of the thing that we were able to do. And so I think that was something we definitely took pride in. Absolutely. Um, But there were a couple things that made it challenging to think about how we're going to run this long term sustainably. Uh, One of the things was realizing that the food stamp program is run by the state and that every state runs their own program. Mm -hmm. That Every state has their own food stamp application form, has their own application processes. Uh, And so for us to do this, we started in New York City. We spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania as kind of our second state. Uh, But those two alone took us about two years. And the notion of like how we were going to get to a 50-state product mm-hmm. uh, seemed pretty daunting. Uh, the second challenge is really just we know how to make money. Yeah, uh, We had tried a bunch of different business models on this because we'd always I had always wanted to run this as a for-profit software company. I thought there was an opportunity to run a mission-driven company that was focused on social impact and was driven by the impact on consumers, but that was a for-profit and that got to use the tools of, of uh, for-profits because I had seen you know so personally... Um, like the uh, the CTO uh, 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 of Instagram, I was actually uh, my teaching assistant in 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 CS at Stanford. Wow! And like <laughs> just being surrounded by tech entrepreneurs who had used the tools of for profits and venture capital and scaling quickly to be successful made me think, why can't we do that in social impact too? Yeah. Uh, we never figured out how to build a business model on this. Um, one of the th- you know we tried selling it to state governments. Yeah. Turns out it's really hard to sell enterprise software to a state mm-hmm. government when you're a three-person company. We tried selling it um, to nonprofits that were doing enrollment. Nonprofits don't really ha- have a budget for that kind of thing, you know. Ultimately, we tried selling it to grocery stores. Hmm. We had this idea that uh, you know people feel the pain of of not having enough money to pay for food while they're walking through the grocery store, and so grocery stores ought to actually be incentivized to get more people to sign up because nominally you don't have food stamps, now you get food stamps. Food stamps can only be spent at grocery stores on food, and so grocery stores will make more revenue if you sign up for food stamps. Um, It didn't really work. Uh, Lots of challenges around finding the individuals to sign up, how we actually got them through the bureaucracy of the application process. But it was really that that led us towards Fresh EBT, the product, was talking to people in grocery stores about how they use their food stamp benefits Mm -hmm. and learning more about what it was like to swipe this card at the point of sale what it was like to plan out your shopping trip with an ebt card and that's really what led us to the business we have now
1: so was there like a uh an aha moment at one conversation that was like oh we should try that or was it enough people telling you over and over and over how did you what What was the light bulb
0: well there was a specific uh a specific day in december i remember that it was december 2015 where we were standing at a grocery store in philadelphia
1: oh that was uh, warm i'm sure so you were like standing outside of a grocery we store in inside the grocery store okay philadelphia. So good good you're good better. So just um, harassing people in random
0: random aisles is what you're talking. We telling were about. asking people if they wanted to sign up for food stamps. Okay. And uh we were getting a lot of no's, but we had a lot of people tell us that they didn't want to sign up because they already had food stamps. They were there to spend their benefits. And when you look at the numbers, it's actually not surprising. About 90% of Americans who qualify for food stamps are currently signed up. Hmm. Depending on the state, it's somewhere between uh 70% up to 90%. Um And so it's not surprising that most people we talked to were already signed up or who didn't qualify, period. Yeah. So eventually, we couldn't get anyone to sign up using our software. So we eventually just asked someone, okay, tell me more about how you're planning to buy groceries with your food stamps. Um, And a woman said, you know, the first thing that I do is I call the phone number on the back of my EBT card so I can check my balance. So we asked her to call that number for us. Uh, She she had it saved on speed dial on her Android phone. And before the, uh, the automated prompt started talking, she immediately pressed one and then typed in her entire card number purely from memory. Wow. And uh, told us that she was so used to calling this phone number that it was just faster that way.
1: It sounds like a migraine level pain point that you hit upon there. Yeah. So you're having this conversation in the grocery store. You have this aha moment and you pivot the company. It's time to go figure out how to solve this problem instead. How big of a technical challenge was that? I mean, imagine there are some pretty ancient systems that you were dealing with when you kind of stood up the MVP. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, and that's Ram, uh, our uh, CTO, who really shouldered the heavy load on sort of figuring out the technology and making it all work. Um, <clears throat> you know, it is a pivot for us in, in the sense that we are solving a different problem for different people. But in the grand scheme of things, we're a food stamp software company, like fairly similar products. Um, the integration point for this was a little different. What we needed to do was figure out on behalf of each person using our products, how do we get their EBT balance and show that to them instead of our app? So we actually found that uh, every state contracts with a private payment processor who's responsible for administering the program. Hmm. They subcontract out the like printing of the cards themselves. Uh, one of the things that the EBT processors are required by contract to do is provide different ways for people who have EBT cards to go check their balance. Hmm. So they provide these phone hotlines, you can call. Um, they also, in some cases, provide a website where you can log in to go see your balance. Now, those sites don't really work on smartphones. Um, sometimes they're pretty challenging to use. They haven't been updated in a whole bunch of years, but they do exist. Um, you know, the, the principle that we kind of latched onto is that this idea that for someone who has an EBT card, it's really their right to access their own information. It's their right to access their balance of how much they have left in their own transaction history. And they should be able to do that through any medium that they choose, whether that's calling the phone hotline or using that website or using a product like ours. And so we really built Fresh EBT as sort of a, a layer on top of the existing mechanisms to access your account information to make it easier for someone who has an EBT card to see you know, their own case information.
1: How did the the growth trajectory kind of develop after you made that slight shift?
0: I mentioned earlier that the food stamp program is run in each state separately. Mm -hmm. So we still did have to deal with that. Each of the 50 states actually has a different portal that you have to log into to go see your balance. And so needed its own type of of tech integration. Um, This is early 2016. I think we launched our first state in December of 2015. And uh, we spent the next six months really looking to launch the app in all 50 states. So that meant uh, our core focus was just how do we make this work in every state? Uh, I think we had it launched in all 50 states by the summertime, by something like June. Wow. How many employees did you have? Uh, still just three of us. It was myself and Ram and Jeff. Uh, and I definitely can't take the credit for all of that. I think it was very much a team effort. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. But it was, frankly, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a lot of like, we're building a thing, it's early, early days for it. Like the app like barely has a name, but it's yeah. one of those, um, I think one of, the, uh, one of the pieces of wisdom that Paul Graham put out there that I really do believe in is that if you put out an MVP product and it has like crappy branding and like the design's not very good, but it does solve some kind of core pain point for people, they will latch on and still love it. And that, that was the case for us. I think in the early version, like we built and launched the first version in like less than a week. Um, and so it wasn't from a consumer software standpoint very good. Um, but it proved out that people really want this thing and that people yeah. are really excited about this notion of being able to access their food stamp benefits like it's a banking account.
1: I love it. I can tell I mean, you just you seem even just like more energized just like talking <laughs> about that portion in your life. I love it. It sounds like you were probably maybe a little tired but like jumping out of bed every day a little bit totally. I love it, man. I love it. so When was CFSI, or when was kind of the early, that first kind of capital injection previous to all that? CFSI
0: was actually right before that. Okay. So when CFSI invested in us, we were still doing food stamp enrollment. Okay. Um, And I actually credit CFSI with sort of this transition for us into financial services and into building Fresh EBT. Because I think the other thing, you know, besides that user story in the grocery store, Um, I think one of the other parallel tracks that was going on for us at that time was just spending a lot of time with other true fintech companies, Mm -hmm. Um, seeing kind of their view of the world, learning how aggregators like Mint and Plaid were building their products and thinking and, and, you know, me kind of constantly asking, like, how does this apply to someone who's using food stamps? How does this apply to someone who we're helping to enroll in food stamps now? Who else
1: was in that cohort? Now that you, you mentioned the other fintech, so now I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was back in 2015. Uh, so I think the cohort's actually done quite well given that it was four years ago. Yeah, was that the Digit one? It was Digit, yeah. So oh. Digit was one of them. Uh, it was Lens Street was yeah. another one. Um, Even was in that cohort. Okay. Uh, I apologize if you're a FinLab founder from that cohort and I'm forgetting, <laughs> forgetting your company or name.
1: But Digit is definitely one that... I remember them specifically in 2015. I actually think that's how I started using them was I heard Mm. about them through CFSI. Cool. So... CFSI, Omidyar Network, you have a number of people on your cap table that, like, makes sense to me for you to have on your cap table, right? Like, you're doing some social good that lines up with the things that they're trying to accomplish. In the seed, in the A, you have A16Z. Uh, In the A, I think Kleiner Perkins and NYCA came in. What was it like pitching something so different to groups that are getting pitched Robin Hood? What was that process like?
0: Yeah, I think... You know, for us, first and foremost, we didn't want any investors in the company who didn't believe in the social mission. Hmm. That was a prerequisite for us. Is that ultimately, you know, you can be a for profit investor, you can be a social impact investor, you can be a non profit, but if you don't believe in the the specific thing that we started the company to solve and our approach to go do it at a very high level, um, then it's not the right fit for us in terms of a partnership. Um, We were fortunate that we found really fantastic investors who have a lot of really incredible strengths who also deeply understand and believe in the social mission around fighting poverty. Um, You mentioned some of their names. I think, uh, you know, it's been a little bit of a journey for us. And it's because I I think in retrospect, like we as a company are pretty unusual in a bunch of ways, but the most aggressive of which is that we are building a for-profit software business that has venture investors that serves the poorest Americans. And that there are basically no good comps for a company that has become a unicorn serving that status totally yeah so i think you can view that in one of two ways right you can say that's scary there's no there's no premise there's no like existing art and like so i'm not going to be the first one to take that risk or you can see that this is a massive opportunity um that it's 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 full of greenfield like there's no one else here who's who's thinking about the world in the same way that we are um, and that there's a, just a huge opportunity to build the category defining kind of like who, who's the business that's going to step in and make this a category. And that's really what we aim to be here
1: so there's no I mean there's no fundraising process that was easy, but I imagine that kind of getting those mental models to shift stepping into these rooms what was it a was it an open process were they you know kind of open to hearing this point of view or was was there a lot of pushback was how hard was it i guess I mean having <laughs> a number of friends that are entrepreneurs that have done fundraisers too I guess you have some some others to compare it against
0: yeah, I think uh it's hard to separate the business I was pitching with sort of just my lack of maturity as an entrepreneur in the early days too. I mean, it was my first time doing a startup, my first time pitching investors. And so there's definitely a learning curve there as well. I think as I sort of got better at that, the company also matured in terms of its product, in terms of its its usage and traction. Um, and so I think those things kind of came hand in hand. The challenges for us were really around uh, convincing investors at the idea stage, whether this was going to be a viable product in business or not. And I think part of that was on. I mean, honestly, the like the first thing to convince people is, uh, you know, are, are we at, as a team committed to building this as a for profit company or do we see this as some kind of like uh, some kind of nonprofit? Um, and we, we debated that, you know, as a team, quite honestly, like we, we do believe in the social mission of this. And that's like a very central part. We would not want to give that up. We, we still don't think we're going to be, you know, be, be forced to give that up. But at the end of the day, you know, it's really a commitment that if we're going to take, you know, take money from these uh, venture investors, that we really were committed to building this, you know, uh, uh, truly as a for-profit.
1: You mentioned kind of your, your lack of maturity at that point. Number one, me sitting here, I'm immature. <laughs> and hopefully at some point uh, we'll be starting a company in the space and going out and doing something similar. Um, and I imagine there's probably some listeners that are in the same position. What are some of the things that kind of stuck out to you that you wish you would have known at the beginning?
0: Uh, that I think it's really hard to fundamentally change people's minds Hmm. and I actually advise other entrepreneurs especially social impact entrepreneurs that are starting new companies and unfamiliar spaces um, to not try Hmm. don't try to change people's minds that ultimately sometimes you walk into a room and the investor asks me questions like you know do poor people really know how to use phones or like can your users read like things like that Um, and I, I think I've just... One of the things that I've made peace with is that uh, we're not going to be able to convince everyone. Yeah. Uh, we don't need everyone to be an investor in the company. That's just not how it works. Um, that we want true believers who are looking for reasons to believe in what we're doing, not skeptics who are looking to detract and point out all the reasons why business is not going to work. Because I think that's true for any business. You want someone who really fundamentally believes in the core of what you're doing and the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and so for us, that means uh, that there are lots of investors that frankly are just not going to be the right fit for us. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. Right. People who, for, for whom this type of area, this type of problem is not something that they've thought about or not something that they have any familiarity with. Um, they're probably not going to be the, 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 the right investors for us.
1: How long did it take you like in an average meeting to figure out this is probably going to go well. This is probably going to go poorly. Is that like a five I mean, minutes kind of thing? Yeah. Or?
0: In my heart of hearts, like five minutes. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it, it took me several years to, sure. to, to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, and to, I, I definitely went into it thinking, oh, this is so great. Like I'll be able to convince someone that like, this is this interesting business opportunity and that their eyes will be opened to this new market that they didn't understand previously. And yeah. Great. Uh, I think in, in retrospect, that's, uh, it, it's, it, it might be possible. Maybe someone who's a better convincer than me can go do it. But I've realized that that's not the right usage of my time and energy.
1: A couple things before we transition to the best usage of your time and energy over the next five to 10 years. How in the hell did you get Kevin Durant
0: involved? <laughs> uh, so we met Kevin Durant through Andreessen Horowitz. Okay. And he is really, uh, you know, the, the thing that resonated to him about our business and, uh, and vice versa for him to us was really his personal understanding of the mm-hmm. experiences of the Americans that we're trying to help. Um, that he grew up in a low income household. The story of kind of him and his mom um, is quite central to kind of his upbringing and and who he is. And he is someone who's really committed through his nonprofit and charity efforts to fight fight poverty and to give back. Um, And I think he saw Propel as sort of a combination of the things that he really cares deeply about in terms of his causes with, um, you know, he also invests in tech companies and has Mm -hmm. an interest in fintech. And so saw a chance to kind of step in and be helpful.
1: I love it. And my second one, just because I'm a fanboy of both of these, um, Alexa Von Tobel. How'd you get her involved?
0: Yeah, Alexa's fantastic too. I mean, for her, it's another, I think, similar example of her past experiences uh, just made her deeply understand this area and and made the problems that we solve pretty resonant with her. So in her experience running LearnVest and thinking about personal finance and how to help people improve their financial health, um, I think... She sees flavors of that in the work that we do today, yeah. um, and so I think that's why she was so excited, and, and we are so excited to also have her on board as someone who's a really experienced founder.
1: The idea that she, as an individual, can participate in a Series A is also really cool to me. Like, oh. the fact that that check can be written just makes me very happy. Let's talk a little longer term. You said something over drinks at South By that really, really stuck with me and kind of got me thinking about just what the world's going to look like over the next 10, 20 years if Propel's successful. Uh, and that was basically just that you think you're in the second inning, right? Things are going well. Series A has been raised. I think you might have even said first inning. Like you you were saying it was really, really early. Could you know, there's a, game. Yes, there's a there's a long, there's a long game to be had here. So so talk to me about that.
0: Well, let me let me paint a little bit clearer picture of sort of where we are now. Yeah. Um, and then also just kind of the ninth inning of where this is all going. So Fresh EBT, I mentioned a uh, financial tool that treats uh, government benefits like food stamps, like like money and helps people manage them in that context. We help people save money, we help people find jobs. Uh, Fresh EBT is used by about two million people across the country each month, which makes it uh, one of the most popular finance apps um, on the Android platform in particular, it's usually top 10. Um, but the reason I say that we're, we're still early in the game for what we're trying to do is that ultimately, um, you know lots of Americans run into financial shocks if I think about my dad's experience um, living sort of a financial life that was sort of on the fringes and then having a financial shock where he lost his job and, and had a, a rough time you know it's actually the majority of, of American adults run into a challenge like that at some point in their financial lives and so the fact that we are still just focused on the food stamp program still just focus on this tiny slice of our users' financial lives means that we've got a long ways to go to get to the type of impact that we really care about. Um, And what that impact looks like for us is actually, you know, when I think about the ultimate goal of the company, it's around making America's safety net more effective so that people can get back on their feet faster. Uh, What that looks like to me is that in America, when someone has a financial shock and has a financial problem, um, and need safety net services. So we as taxpayers spend trillions of dollars on safety net services, mm-hmm. um, properly defined You know more broadly, um, that those services can be more effective at actually helping someone to get back on their feet faster. That you experience a financial problem and there ought to be a suite of tools available to you, right? You can think of the app that we we're building as the back on your feet app. You know, what is the app that mm. really, um, that tries to meet someone right in their lowest point when they've had a really rough time and says, here are all the resources, some of which we build, some of which we find, that are you know really suited to your situation to help you to get back on your feet. And to have an economy where people can experience financial shock but not fall into poverty for a whole generation um, is the kind of society that we want to live in.
1: So I, l- I love the analogy around the safety net. Is it also fair to say that it's a ladder to some degree? Your user's almost graduating off of fresh EBT onto these other products that kind of keep them moving up the socioeconomic ladder to some degree.
0: Yeah, I think our goal is definitely to help people advance their financial lives to improve their financial health in really clear and really measurable ways. And so for that means like for people on food stamps, it means um, trying to find ways to help someone improve their financial health so that someday they're not on food stamps anymore.
1: Let's transition to the lightning round. We've got a couple questions here. The first one is what is your superpower?
0: Uh, playing Boggle <laughs> or Bananagrams. I'm actually I'm pretty good at word games.
1: Okay, okay. I did not see that coming. Um, most impactful book of your life?
0: Probably, um, the, uh, the inner game of tennis, which is a sports psychology book that I think has a lot of applications outside of sports psychology.
1: Fascinating. Okay, I will add that to the list. And this last one is really kind of the question that this podcast is built around in a lot of ways. Is technology or financial background slash competency more important in fintech?
0: I am going to give an unpopular answer that'll piss everyone off. I love it. I say neither, actually. I think, uh, and the reason I say neither is I think both are being commoditized at a pretty fast rate in a way that's actually positive for the world. Um, and I think the thing that does not get commoditized is understanding people and trying to solve their problems. And that's the core skill set that I think we should lead with, not the technology and not the banking necessarily, but sort of how do those, like what role do those need to play to help actually solve people's problems?
1: Solving real problems for humans. Yeah. That is a pretty good mission to have. So speaking of solving real problems for humans, you all are hiring right now, correct? That's right. Where can people find information about that?
0: Join propel.com. That's our website. Uh, we are hiring all sorts of folks here in our office in Brooklyn.
1: Great. Great. And where can people get in touch with you more broadly?
0: Uh, my Twitter is, uh, Jimmy Chen. Fair enough. It's like you (laughs) got there pretty early or something. Yeah.
1: All right. Awesome. Jimmy, thank you so much for the time.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of For Fintech's Sake with Jimmy Chen. To get in touch with us at For Fintech's Sake, you can find us online at ForFintechSake.com. On Twitter, at ForFintechSake. You can find me on Twitter, at Zach ZachPettit, Z A C H P E T T E T. Or you can email me personally at ZachPettit, spelled the same way, at NBKC.com. Stay tuned for next week where we'll have an episode with Joanne Barefoot. And until then, stay curious, y'all.